This week on the show, we cover the design and implementation of the NetBSD RC.D system, selling OpenBSD as a salesperson, a little bit of a fun thing here, speeding up autoconflict caching, allowing the non-root user executing processes in a jailed application, configuring login and SSHD for the YubiKey on OpenBSD, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. Now, episode 462, OpenBSD Sales Pitch, recorded on the 29th of June 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show, maybe you want to check out our BSD Now Patreon page on patreon.com slash bsdnow. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I am Tom Jones. Yes, this is our current setting for this week and we have headlines for you we are going to go a little bit on the academic side here on the first one we have the design and implementation no not of the freebsd operating system for a change but of the netbsd rcd system okay and this is a paper by luke oh man this always happens luke Mewburn. Mewburn. um and, and luke writes NetBSD recently converted from the traditional 4.4 BSD monolithic slash ETC RC startup script to an ETC slash RCD mechanism. I don't think recently is particularly recent. I don't know when the paper was written. Well, um, when is this paper, by the way? This is new or old? I think this is old. Of sorts. It's talking about yeah. NetBSD 2. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Then it's yeah. oldish. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite old. <laughs> <laughs> but nevertheless, interesting. Um, to, a, to an etcrc.d mechanism where there is a separate script to manage each service or daemon, and these scripts are executed in a specific order at boot time. This paper covers the motivation, design, and implementation of the rc.d system from the history of what NetBSD had before to the system that NetBSD 1.5 shipped with in December 2000. Okay, so it's a paper from 2000. Um, history. There is great diversity in the system startup mechanisms used by various Unix variants. If only he had known the future that was going to come with NetPSD <laughs> uh, uh, with um, <laughs> System D. Uh, a few of the more pertinent schemes are detailed below. As NetBSD is derived from 4.4 BSD, it follows that a description of the later's method is relevant. Solaris startup method is also detailed, as is the most common uh, System 5 Unix variant. 4.4 BSD has a rather simple startup sequence. When booting multi-user, the kernel runs init, which spawns a shell to run etc slash rc, which contains commands to check the consistency of the file system, mount the disks, startup system processes, etc. Uh, rc invokes etc net start to configure the network and any associated service, and etc rc.local, if it exists, for locally added services. After etcrc has successfully completed, init forks a copy of itself for each terminal in uh, etcttys, usually running user libexec getty on them. Administrative configuration of system services is controlled by editing with scripts, etcrc, rc.local, netstart. In some instances, only shell variables need to be changed. In others, commands are added, changed, or removed. 
4.4 BSD has no specific shutdown procedure. After init receives a sig term signal, it sends sig hop signal to each process with a controlling terminal, which the process was expected to catch and handle appropriately. 10 seconds later, this is repeated with sig term instead of sig hop. And 10 seconds after that, sig kill is sent. After all processes have exited, or when 30 seconds have elapsed, init drops to single user, reboots, or shuts down as appropriate. Solaris 7. Solaris is the most common System 5 variant and serves as a good reference implementation of the System 5 init.d mechanism as implemented by System 5 Release 4, SVR 4. When running, the system can be in one of eight distinct run levels, which are distinct states in which selected groups of processes may run. The run level may be changed at any time by a privileged user running init, with the run level as an argument, and the run level may be determined at any time with the who-r command. When the system is booted, the kernel runs init, whose purpose is to spawn processes defined in etc init tab. For each configuration line in etc init tab that has a run level field, r level, which matches the current run level and it starts the process defined on that line as per the given action field. The different run levels are zero, shutdown, s or capital S, single user with all file systems mounted, one, a single user with file systems mounted and user logins allowed, two, multi-user with all services running except NFS, three, multi-user with all services running, which is usually the default, four, unused, five, shut down the system and attempt to turn it off, six, shut down the system to level zero and reboot. For any given run level X, uh, shell script uh, sbin rcx exists to control the run level change and etc rcx.d contains the scripts to be ex executed at the change. rcx stops the services in the files matching rcx.d slash k star in lexicographical order uh, and then starts the service matching uh, rcdx dot rcx.d slash x star in order, s star in order. To add a new service foo requires adding the rcx.d slash s star foo in the appropriate run level to start the service. And then the k version in all the other run levels where y is the service not to be run. It's really confusing. Usually these files are actually linked to appropriate script in etc init.d which implements a startup and shutdown procedures for a given service. To disable or remove a service, any files matching um, a regular expression need to be removed. NetBSD prior to 1.5. Prior to the release of NetBSD 1.3, NetBSD's startup mechanism was similar to 4.4 BSDs with relatively minor changes as described. In NetBSD 1.3, released in January 1998, two major user-visible user additions were made to the startup system etcrc.conf and etcrc.lkm. Uh, rc.conf contains variables to control which services are started by rc and netstar. For each service foo, two variables may be, may be provided. Uh, dollar foo can be yes or no. If set to yes, the service or action related to foo is started. foo underscore flags, optional flags to invoke foo with. The aim of uh, etcrc.conf was to separate the scripts that start services from configuration, configuration information about the services. This allows updating of the startup scripts in an operating system upgrade with less chance of losing site-specific configuration. Similar etcrc.conf functionality has been implemented in commercial Unix and BSD-derived systems, including current systems such as FreeBSD. By the time this change was considered for NetBSD, it had a reasonable number of users 
of prior art to help justify its implementation. ETCRC.LKM was added to provide control over how loadable kernel modules are loaded at boot time. Uh, RC.LKM is invoked at three separate stages during the boot process, before networking, before non-critical file systems are mounted, and after all file systems are mounted. This complexity is required because a loadable kernel module may be located on a local or remote file system. The configuration file etclkm.conf controls the behavior of rc.lkm. In NetBSD 1.4, released in May 1999, two more additions were made, uh, etcrc.shutdown and etcrc.wcons. rc.shutdown is run at shutdown time by shutdown. This occurs before the global SIG hop is sent. Uh, this is useful because there are some services that should be shut down in order. Databases, um, database using applications before their databases. Some services that require more than SIG hop for a clean shutdown. ETCRC.WCONS was added to control how the WSCONS console driver was configured at boot time and to allow manual reconfiguration. So in summary, prior to 1.5, um, at multi-user boot, and it calls ETCRC to initialize the system. ETCRC calls uh, ETC NetStart to set up networking. ETCRC local for local services and ETC LKM to initialize loadable kernel modules and ETCRC.WSCONS to configure the WSCONS driver. The startup of services was configured by ETCRC.conf. Over a six year period, sorry, number, section three, design considerations. Over a six year period, various ideas on how to enhance the startup system were floated uh, on the public NetBSD mailing list, current users and tech user level as well. There was no consensus on one true design. <laughs> there was too much contention for that. What is described below is an amalgamation of what a few developers felt was a reasonable analysis of the problems and feedback, as well as the most reasonable solution to support the widest variety of circumstances. Problems with the old system. There was no control over dependency ordering. Uh, it was difficult to manually control an individual service. It didn't easily cater for addition of local or third-party startup mechanisms, leading to requirements for the new system. Given the problems in old systems and observations of what other systems have done, including those described in section two, the following design considerations were defined. Uh, some of the considerations were not determined during discussion prior to implementation, but were identified once users were act actively using the system. Dependency ordering. Dependency ordering is a strong requirement the following dependency order requirements were, de were determined. Independence from lexicographical ordering of file names. Ability to insert local or third-party scripts anywhere in the sequence. Not bloating slash bin and slash sbin on machines with small root file systems. Use dynamic dependency ordering. Um, after various discussions and implementation tests, it was decided that a dedicated dynamic ordering tool, rcorder, was the most appropriate mechanism to achieve this. Uh, is this it, RC order? Is it RC order? Yeah, okay. I always... Yeah, makes sense. I've only come across this like twice. I think it's used... Ah. I think, I'm sure it's used in Poudrier. I have some other words that are like, oh, someone pronounced it differently and it makes much more sense. I don't recall them at the moment, but it's like, yeah, you're, you're right. There should be an underscore to <laughs> signify where one word ends and the other starts. Okay, so skipping through the middle part anyway. of the paper where they talk about how they ended up with the design, they have implementation and aftermath. And I've never used the word aftermath in a paper, but I do want to now. Um, 
If a system was implemented as described above in the design section that I skipped, although the design was slightly fluid and did change as feedback was incorporated, there are two elements to the post-implementation analysis, human issues and technical details. Human issues, there was a lot of feedback, debate, angst, flames, and hate mail. I think my system D author should have read this paper. That's in the paper? Yeah, it's in the paper, yeah. Wow. <laughs> the, the change has been one of the most contentious in the history of the project. The first commits to the source repository were made with the intention of providing a mostly complete implementation, which was to be incrementally improved over a few months before the release of NetBSD 1.5. Unfortunately, we made one of our largest implementation mistakes at this point. We didn't warn the user base that this was our intention and commits were seen as a stealth attack. This was partly because we felt that there had been enough debate uh, and announcing our intentions would have delayed the project another few months for a rehash of the same debate, which had been going on for five years. After the initial implementation, various technical and religious complaints were raised about the system. A summary of these is the use of magic functions, switching from ETC RC is not the BSD way. Um, why wasn't a system five init.d implemented? Because some of the detractors were quite vocal in the complaints, there was a per perception for a time that the work was against a majority decision. This was far from the truth. Many users and developers had become jaded with the discussion over years and did not bother to argue in support of the change, since they agreed with it in principle, if not in implementation particulars. This was borne out uh, by the level of support for the change in the time since implementation. Technical details. The RC.D system comprises the following components. ETCRC, uh, system startup script, rc.shutdown, shutdown script, etcrc.d slash star, individual startup scripts, etcrc.subroutine, common shell routines, uh, etcdefaults rc.conf, default system configuration, etcrc.conf, system configuration, etcrc.conf.d slash star, per service configuration. On system startup, etc is executed by init, ETC then calls RC order to order the scripts in ETC RC.D. They do not have a no star RC order keyword to obtain a list of script names. ETC RC then invokes each script in turn with the argument start. The purpose of the no start support is to allow primarily third party scripts, which are only to be manipulated manually and not started automatically to be installed in ETC RC.D. No scripts in the standard NetBSD distribution use this feature. Um, yeah, this is an 11 page paper. Um, so I'm going to skip just all the way through down to future work and the conclusion. Um, I'd like to implement functionality to allow you to start up or shut down services from service A to service B. This would allow you to start in single user mode and then start up just enough to get network running or start all services until before multi-user login or just those services between network running to database start. This could be a fairly simple system and provide most of the functionality that people want to see, seem to want run states for. I encourage other systems that are still using a monolithic ETCRC who would like to resolve some of the similar issues NetBSD had uh, to consider this work. I would like to liaise with the maintainers of those systems. NetBSD 1.5 has a startup which implements useful functionality, such as the ability to control the dependency ordering of services at system boot and manipulate individual services, as well as retaining useful features of previous releases, such as etcrc.conf. 
This work was extremely contentious and difficult to implement because of this contentious nature. The implementation phase did not provide value, did provide valuable insight into some of the difficulties involved in the design and development of large open source projects. And I, in the long run, I believe this work will have benefits for the majority of users, both in day-to-day -day operation of the system, as well as during future upgrades from BSD, uh, NetBSD 1.5. I would love to know what happened after this paper. It seems like there's a lot of contention about changing anything in uh, startup systems. Uh, Linux had it, FreeBSD had it at one point. <laughs> and, uh, I, it's I, still going on. I mean, this is not a discussion that's settled. People don't like unlearning things they've learned. People really struggle with that. Yeah, really new things are apparently dangerous and yeah, need a lot of uh, convincing if that is actually possible. I think if yeah, it's kind of nice to see. <laughs> yeah, I think if you're there. if you're going to come into any development which is touching a a user interface, people feel like they are uh, an expert in. So, like as a system administrator, you feel like you're an expert in running the system and managing it and running your stuff. Uh, and because you had to learn these things, right? Like if you yeah, gave me a, way. if you gave me a Red Hat machine tomorrow, I'd have to learn how to like start a web server. I mean, I think yeah. I would just install Nginx and it would run automatically. I'd probably have to learn how to turn the web server off more than anything. Um, but after but I'd done you... that, I'd feel like an expert, right? Um, sure. But then do you when know that... what kind of package system that uh, is installing? Like, do we know the package system? No, like, like there's a lot of stuff, work. right? But if I went and learned all that, all these pieces, I'd, I would feel like I had achieved something. And then if it changed next week, which it would because it was Linux, um, I would feel betrayed and I'd be angry. Yeah, I would have all my knowledge uh, made for nothing or it's just obsolete from one day to the next. And that's why people are upset when you change these interfaces because I'm sure in 2000, <laughs> 2000 is a long time ago, uh, people were had felt a lot of accomplishment for the servers they were running and they yeah. probably lived a life where they were the expert running all the, the Unix machines that they ran 10 times as many as people running like, I don't know, AIX systems. I'm just making stuff up now um mm. and that went away and i can see how that'd be really upsetting like, yeah you're, you're not the king of the hill anymore you are suddenly someone who has to learn anew <laughs> like if, <sighs> if if i came benedict tomorrow and i swapped your nissan leaf for my skoda fabia you would be very annoyed that you had to remember how to use gears oh yes gear shifting and drive on the other side of the car don't remind me of oh yeah that there's that in your country um see you'd be furious uh, yeah. you'd be really annoyed and i think it's that sort of change it's like i know how to do this it's really easy and it goes away like i've seen people come to freebsd and be really annoyed because all the packages are named different to what they are in debian and they don't know how to start stuff and then throw a small hissy fit and go away and i understand but the change is hard yeah yeah, you want to look for something familiar to not run everything all over again and be the beginner again. But com completely blocking such an improvement like parallel upstarts and stuff. I mean, there's small improvements in the RCD system here and there, but like this completely revolutional thing never happened. And even evolutional ones are discussed to death. That, that's the thing as well, right? Like it doesn't take any individual to stop this. It could take lots of people saying, I object to this small thing. But if a yeah. hundred people do that, they've objected to everything. And then it- Yeah, then happen. nothing gets ever changed. Yeah, nothing will improve. 
Ah, yeah. So this is our little uh, discussion about this. And looking back at uh, <laughs> what uh, people had to deal with back in the day, you kind of learn what systems are still out there today or what discussions are being held. If you, if... Uh, let's move on. Yeah, yeah let's move on. <laughs> to yeah. a bit more interesting <laughs> section because Celine, which we interviewed a while ago here on the podcast, uh, keeps blogging. And this time she asks herself this little thought experiment, how I would sell OpenBSD as a salesperson. So that is an interesting experiment. And she writes in the introduction, let's have fun today. I always wondered how I would sell OpenBSD licenses to customers if I was a salesperson. So big disclaimer here, this text is pure fiction and fun. The OpenBSD project is free of charge and will remain this way in the foreseeable future uh, and is under a Libra software license. So this is a pure thought experiment. Don't freak out about this. Okay. Killer features is the first one she lists. Uh, when selling a product, it's always important to talk about the killer features, what makes a product as a good one and why it would solve the customer's problems, right? Because otherwise, why bother? Then there's, oh, here we go again, learn once. If you were to use OpenBSD, you certainly would have a slight learning curve, but then the system is so stable over time that the acquired knowledge would be reused from release to release. Most base tools in OpenBSD are evolving while keeping compatibility with regard to how you administrate them. Can we say so far for the Linux ecosystem, which changes its sound and in its system every five years? Hmm. Can we say so for Windows, which revisits most of its interfaces at every new release? Hmm. Well, the hmm are by me. Uh, learning OpenBSD is a good investment that will save you time later so you can use your computer without frustration. Then there's secure by default. That's, of course, OpenBSD's main selling point. OpenBSD comes with strong security defaults. You don't have to tweak anything. Development did it for you. You can confidently use your OpenBSD computer and you will be safe from all the bad actors targeting mainstream systems. Even more, OpenBSD makes or takes care of your privacy and doesn't run any telemetry, doesn't record what you type, doesn't upload any data, the team took care of disabling microphone and webcam by faking the input stream with empty data until you explicitly allow one or the other to record audio and video. Then there's the community aspect, community driven, because you certainly don't want to suffer from big IT actors' decisions affecting your favorite operating system. OpenBSD is community driven and take care of not being infecting uh, by big, or not being infected by big tech agendas. The system is made for the developers by the developers, and you can use it as a customer. Doesn't this feel great to know the authors use their own software? Then there's no obsolescence uh, and eco-friendly. Rest assured that your brand new computer will still be able to run OpenBSD in 20 years. The team is taking a special care of keeping compatibility for all the hardware until it's too hard to find spare components. It's almost a lifetime of system upgrades for your hardware. As the competitors still supporting Spark, uh, or are the competitors still supporting Spark 64 and 32-bit PowerPC for a modern computer experience? I don't think so. The installer is still available for floppy disk. I think this says it all. Uh, side note from me: I should become a salesperson anytime soon. Here, um, <laughs> going back to the article. Very low maintenance is another argument. Uh, so OpenBSD is designed to be highly resilient and so simple that it can't break. Be sure you won't waste the time fixing problems on your system. With a free major upgrade every six months and regular security updates, your system keeps being bulletproof with no more maintenance. From that, you can run the updates and more and more and more. More experienced users can even automate this using the built-in free uh, of charge task scheduler. Here's the licensing bit. 
OpenBSD is perfect for people who want to become rich. Think about this. You love your OpenBSD system and you want to make a product out of it. Perfect. The licensing allows you to make changes to OpenBSD, redistribute it, charge people for it, and you don't even have to show a single line of your product source code to your customers. This is a perfect licensing for or a perfect license for people who would like to build proprietary devices based on OpenBSD, a rock solid system. Against all industry standards, in case you would improve your OpenBSD, you are allowed to make changes to it without losing the warranty coming with the licensing. There is technical support mentioned. If you ever need help, you will have direct access for free to the mailing list of the project, allowing you to exchange directly with the people developing OpenBSD. Documentation should also not be forgotten. Don't be afraid to jump into OpenBSD from another operating system. We took care of documenting everything you will need. We are very proud of our documentation and you can even use your OpenBSD system without internet connectivity and still being able to read the top-notch documentation to configure your system to your needs. No more need to use a search engine to find old blog posts with outdated and inaccurate advice. It's also fast to install. And uh, here we go, behind the scenes. Is another one, of course, as a <clears throat> good salesperson, I would have to avoid some topics because this would make the customer lose interest into OpenBSD. However, they could be turned uh, as a positive fact. For example, OpenBSD doesn't support Bluetooth, but you can see this as a security feature. The code was entirely removed from the kernel because Bluetooth is full of traps and could easily leak data over the air. You certainly don't want that. Then you may think OpenBSD uh, is a slow performance system uh, and could hit your productivity but on the contrary it's a feature that will prevent you from losing focus on what you are currently working on think about the turtles and the hare Ooh, okay then maybe your favorite software is proprietary and will not be provided for OpenBSD. then your provider is entirely at fault because they don't want to make the software compliant with OpenBSD strong quality requirements to provide a working binary mm. Okay, then, and the last point here, you may have heard some hardware won't run on OpenBSD. This can happen for very niche hardware. The OpenBSD team is working hard to give you the best experience on a selection of affordable hardware with premium support. And she concludes her sales pitch with, uh, I hope you understand this was a fiction. OpenBSD is free and anyone can use it. It has strengths and weaknesses. As always, it's important to use the right tool for the job. The team would be happy to receive contributions from you. If you want to improve OpenBSD, by doing so, you could help her or the whole community improve <laughs> my speech as a salesperson. Excellent. And below there is here, shut up, take my money. Yeah, that's a nice uh, catchy way of selling a product like this uh, in, in an open <laughs> or in an open source world. <laughs> I, I like the honesty as well, the behind the scenes. It, it, yeah, it has, of course, a couple of things that are, hmm, with a bit of a twinky eye, but hey, it's... It's interesting, and she lists a couple of good reasons why you should consider OpenBSD. Okay, let's jump into our news roundup. And a couple of episodes ago, we mentioned a certain article, Remembering Build Tool, from Julio Marino. And he apparently listens to this podcast. Thank you, by the way. And he wrote a follow-up article, uh, which is this one, Speeding Up. Uh, autoconf with caching and he's referencing this episode okay i think uh, we covered this with alan last time <laughs> yeah anyway. so so julio writes in the recent remembering build tool post i described how setting up a cache of configuration checks was an important step in build tools installation process the goal was to avoid po pointless repetitive work on every build by performing such common checks once 
episode 457 of BSD Now featured my post, and Alan Jude wondered how much time would be saved in a bulk build of all FreeBSD packages if we could just do that same kind of caching with GNU AutoConf. And you know what? It is indeed possible to do. I had mentioned it in passing in my post, but I just guess I wasn't clear enough, so let's elaborate. The problem, AutoConf's slowness. The configure scripts generated by GNU AutoConf are slow, very slow, to the point where sometimes their execution time is longer than the time it takes to build the package they configure, especially true on multi-core systems where the scripts make the build drag along. Here, take a look at some package build times on an eight-core machine from 2011. Um, and so bmake takes eight seconds to configure and seven seconds to build with make-j8. Uh, CoreUtils takes 62 seconds to configure and 96 seconds, so it's like two-thirds of the amount of time. Uh, M4 takes 36 seconds to configure and nine seconds to build, so it takes four times as long to configure. Um, PackageConf takes three seconds to configure and two seconds to make, so I don't know. Um, yeah, and so there's, there's quite a lot of big chunks of the build timers going into configure. For comparison, here are two of the builds from two of the builds above. I did not have the patience to run them all on an even older single core PowerBook G4 from 2005. Uh, BMake takes 44 seconds to configure and 60 seconds to build with make-j1. And Tmux takes 46 seconds to configure and 217 seconds to build with make-j1. Ouch. Note the huge <laughs> cost of the configure runtime relative to make. You might think that slow configure scripts aren't a big deal, but pause for a second to realize that these scripts plague the entire Unix ecosystem. Almost every package in your standard Linux distribution or BSD system has a configure script of its own, and this script has to be run before the package can be built. Considering that this ecosystem favors small source packages, each with its own configure script, the cost adds up quickly. But wait, it gets even worse. All BSD systems in some Linux distribution have some form of bulk build a long running process where they rebuild the entire collection of binary packages at once from source. These binary packages are the ones you can later trivially install, say via package on FreeBSD or DNF on Fedora. The bulk builds take several hours at best on the most powerful machines and several weeks, or is it months, at worst on legacy platforms. I don't have hard numbers, but based on the simple data presented above, it, it's fair to assume that a large percentage of the total build time is wasted on configure scripts. And most of this time is stupidly spent doing the same work over and over again. Can we do anything to make these runs faster? Well, yes, it turns out we can. Before getting into that, let's explain why these scripts are so slow and why this is still a big problem on modern multi-core machines. The reasons configure scripts are slower varied. Uh, they're huge shell scripts, BMakes configure uh, to take just one example is about 210 kilobytes, so a total of 7,500 lines. The shell is a language that doesn't win speed tests. They are creating, compiling, and running small programs to verify features of the host system. They are sequential and mostly I.O. bound. Parallel builds to the rescue. Ah, but it doesn't matter, you say. While the configure script of one package may be slow, we are building thousands of packages in bulk. Therefore, we can make use of parallelism to hide the costs. Yeah, not really. You see, the end-to-end -end build of the package tends to be bimodal. The configure script is slow, IO-bound, and sequential, while the build process is typically reasonably parallel and CPU-bound. Actually, the end-to-end -end process is trimodal if we account for IO in installation setup. Let's ignore that. 
These different kinds of resource consumption at different stages pose problems when trying to parallelize the build of independent packages. Suppose we have a machine with eight CPUs and that every package's build stage is parallel enough to consume up to four CPUs at a time. If we try to build eight of these packages in parallel to paper with the fact that configure is sequential, we'll have good cases where we're running eight scripts at once and making an okay use of resources. Unfortunately, we'll have bad cases where eight packages are in their build stage trying to use four CPUs each, which means we'll have 32 CPU hungry processes scheduled on eight CPUs. The later scenario, latter scenario is more likely than the former, so this is not great. To fix this under bulk build scenarios, we could say that we don't want to allow parallel builds within a package. Uh, so that is, we restrict each build to make-j1 to keep every package limited to one CPU at most. But if we do that, we'll introduce major choke points in the build because some packages like Clang are depended on by almost everything and take forever to build without parallelism. Say hello to GNU AutoConf caching. GNU AutoConf does have first class caching features. Using them with a single package is trivial. All we have to do is pass dash dash config cache flag to the script as described in the cache file section of the manual, and it'll produce a config.cache with the results of the invocation. Um, this is nice for a single package, but it turns out that the dash dash config cache flag takes an optional parameter to specify the path to the cache file. There is nothing prevents us passing a path to a central location and reusing the same cache for various packages. In fact, GNU AutoConf developers uh, have thought about this problem. On the one hand, the tool supports setting up a system-wide configuration file known as config.site as described in the setting site default section of the manual. On the other hand, the default code snippet they show in the manual has an explicit mention of using a system-wide cache. It, wouldn't it be easier really to cache results? But then why aren't we collectively using this feature more widely? Well, caching configure results willy-nilly can cause random build failures because the checks performed by one package aren't necessarily equivalent to similar-looking similar checks in another. An obvious case is when the results of a check depend on the results of a previous check. For cache correctness, any two scripts need to run these two checks in the same order, but as there's no guarantee they'll do so. If we want to have system-wide caching of, reason of reasonable safety, we need to do better than simply pointing all configure runs to a central cache, and this is where auto SWC enters the picture. Uh, auto SWC, whose name stands for Automatic System-Wide Configuration, was brought to you by yours truly in 2004. Oh, thanks, Julio. Uh, is a little tool that exposes GNU AutoConf system-wide caching facilities in a safe manner. The idea behind auto SWC is that you, the administrator, create a system-wide configure script with the list of checks you want to cache and then run auto SWC to refresh, refresh the cache at specific points in time, say before performing a bulk build, then any build you perform from within package source, the tool is specific to the packaging system, will reuse these checks, but these arbitrary builds won't contaminate the central cache. To put it another way, auto SWC helps to find a cache of safe checks and automates the process of using those during bulk builds, minimizing the risk of bad things happening due to cache contamination. Using this tool is easy. I had not used it in years, but installing it from package source and setting up only required these steps. Uh, install package tools auto SWC, copy uh, a config script, append.sinclude to make.conf, uh, occasionally run auto SWC from the command line to update the cache. Voila, 
all package builds done through package source now benefit from the cache configuration results by the files in step two. Unfortunately, as good as this may seem, auto SWC's results aren't impressive. The main problem is that it's on you, the administrator, to create the list of checks to cache. This is a very difficult task as it requires looking at what configure scripts are doing throughout a bulk build and determining which checks are safe to cache and which aren't. And ain't nobody got time for that. I think my hope when I created this tool was we get a swarm of people with package source expertise to create the predefined list of checks in the sample configure.ac file, and we'd all benefit from results on our own machines and on the bulk build clusters. This obviously did not happen, but the feature in GNU AutoConf exists. Auto SWC is still functional and trivially configurable, and with some effort, it could potentially bring some tangible speed improvements to builds, especially on old hardware. Anyhow, now you know about the one more hidden feature that GNU AutoConf has and that can potentially speed things up in repeated package builds massively. Thank you, Julio. Hmm. Yeah, it's certainly interesting as a tool. And it's a nice uh, hooking back into an early episode where Alan had mentioned a similar solution. Okay, looking at uh, solutions here, we have found a tutorial on the FreeBSD forums allowing non-root execution of a jailed application. So that is something that people may want to have. And so uh, the author here writes, jet programs can generally be executed using JEXEC. However, you have to be root in order to do that. In this short article, I present an approach how you can allow a specific set of non-privileged users to execute a particular jailed application. Uh, there's a motivation part here. Uh, you have some uh, jail called jailed foo, uh, whose only purpose is to exactly run one specific program foo because you don't want it to run on your host system, either because it needs an emulation layer like the Linux emulator, or you don't want to pollute your host system with lots of dependencies. Suppose this program is installed in the jail under optbloatware.com slash foo, then executed in that directory is foo-bin, or the executable there. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, and to run this, you just run jexec from the host, jailed foo, the uh, jail name, and then slash optbloatware.com slash foo slash foo-bin. Okay, you have to be root, however, to do that. And now here the solution is uh, that uh, Klaus, uh, in this case, you can also call it whatever different username doesn't matter here. If that person is allowed to execute programs using sudo, uh, that person could run sudo jxec and then the rest of the command line. This is fine, but sudo generally asks for a password. This is very inconvenient, especially if foo is a graphical application that is supposed to be run by a desktop launcher and not by a terminal. Sure, you could prevent sudo from asking for a password for that user in general, but you may not want to do that because then, well, that person could also run any privileged programs, even on the host, without ever being asked for a password. And if an attacker gets somehow access to that person's account or the terminal, that would be hazardous to the whole system, right? But there is a solution there, a command-based sudo file. The solution is to allow Klaus, in this case, the sudo executed execution of one specific command and to disable asking for a password for that specific command only. What would that command be? Probably not JXX itself, because that would allow Klaus to do that trick on any jail, not just jailed foo. So first we create a custom command in the form of a simple shell script. By abuse of notation, let's call the script foo and place it under user local bin on the host. Confused yet? Not yet. Okay. In our first approach, the script is just one liner from above, just a jxec call. Now, here comes the trick. We create a sudoer file for that specific script, call that sudoer file 
uh, foo, like the command that is referring to, and place it in a directory user local etc sudoers.d. Do this as root with the bi sudo command, and then let uh, it have contents of the following form uh, user on host equals root, no pass wd colon, and then the actual command. So the code looks Klaus, in this case Mercury, that's the host system the root the jail runs on. Root, no pass wd, use local bin foo. Once you have saved the file, Klaus will now be able to do the following without being asked for a password. sudo foo. So, uh, all fine and good. The only thing to worry about is that foo inside the jail is executed as root. It's still inside the jail, so there's probably no problem with that, but some applications just don't like being run as root. We'll fix that now. First, enter the jail as root and create a jail user for Klaus there, the jxec jfoo bin sh, and then add user Klaus, and you run through the add user script. Now to, or you can also use uh, pw there. Now we have to tell our wrapper script on the host to execute that program as the jail user Klaus, who has to have the same name as the host Klaus jxec, has a special option, capital U for that, but this won't work if the jail is in Ubuntu running on Linux later, for example. So we have to, oh, here there's a lot of, uh, <laughs> Uh, catches there. So we will use a modern portable solution using su. The general syntax will be as follows, su-c, uploadware.com and so on, dash, and then Klaus, because then uh, that executes the command based on that, uh, yeah, special uh, permissions. So uh, now Klaus is fine in the general solution bits. Uh, but what about the other users like Marie, for example? He or she might want to run foo as well. Creating another entry in user local etc sudoers.dfoo will be easy, but what about the non-privileged execution inside the jail? With our current solution, Marie would run foo inside the jail as the user Klaus, which is probably not what we want, unless you replace Klaus inside the jail by a more general user like foo user or something. A first idea might be to replace Klaus in user local bin foo by a simple call to who am I. Problem there is, however, that the script use local bin foo is executed by sudo, so the user returned by who am I will always be root. Fortunately, sudo is wise enough to provide us with the user ID of the caller in the form of an environment variable called sudo underscore uid. The only thing we have to do is to convert that uid to the actual username. The program ID is the right tool for that job. So uh, to do that, id-n-u and then the uid will give us the username belonging to a uid. Ah, so that's a reverse lookup of sorts. So in the final version of our wrapper script, uh, you run jlexec, the whole thing, combined with uh, the id command at the end. It's all in the uh, show note link, so you can look. It's difficult to read from here. Um, but now both Klaus and Marie can launch foo from the host by doing a sudo foo without being asked for a password. And only this program will run. Uh, I wish, I wish they'd covered um, things they would want to run in a jail, though, because I've, I've brought this up before developer summits, and no one's really had. No one's ha understood the motivating case to allow an unprivileged user to run stuff in a jail. Hmm. Well, um, because they thought the jail is secure enough by itself. Yeah. But no, no, as in like, so if I, I, as a user on my system, want to make a jail and run stuff inside it. I can't do that because I would be root inside that jail. Yeah, you um, want to have an underprivileged user doing that. Yeah, I, I I can see uses for it, but they're all sort of artificial. It'd be great to get examples of use cases where they made sense. Like running Firefox mm -hmm. in a jail actually makes a lot of sense. Oh yeah, 
perfect sense uh, even to uh, avoid these web thingies that track you everywhere. Yeah, I think you end up having to expose a lot of configuration because otherwise the jail is just can't speak to anything. Yeah, it needs a bit of, uh, <laughs> yeah. Need more stuff. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> to it's combine post. together. Okay, last up. But yeah. Last up this week, we have an article from, uh, I don't know, uh, Ro- Roman Zolotarev um, at that domain. Um, configure login and SSHD for YubiKey on OpenBSD. Uh, Roman writes, the login YubiKey utility is called by login, uh, login underscore YubiKey utility is called by login and others to authenticate the user with YubiKey authentication. Um, and to set this up, you need to prepare the YubiKey um, and you install YubiKey personalization GUI, uh, insert your YubiKey into the USB port and select uh, YubiKey OTP quick configuration slot one or two and write the configuration out. Extract the UID and key from the log, uh, verify var db yubikey files and remove the yubikey.csv file. Um, and then do a bunch more configuration. <laughs> it's really hard to read configuration on a podcast. Uh, and, yeah. then, and then Roman shows the configuration for login and SSHD. Um, you need to change auth defaults in etclogin.conf. Uh, and add auth equals YubiKey and add a line to etc ssh sshd underscore conf uh, authentication methods public key password um, and then restart sshd and when ssh asks for a password instead of entering your regular password touch the YubiKey okay and then you've authenticated with the YubiKey um, and that's it really simple to set cool. up it's actually really straightforward it doesn't yeah, need a lot of pros around and... it. yeah very good and now we have our feedback and questions section and luckily we have feedback uh, from you that we can cover here so thanks for that and we also start with a thanks of our own here well at least from a user glenn a glenn uh, asks or not asks <laughs> has a thanks for todd and it goes like this Glenn, with the white MacBook, would like to thank Todd for his feedback on Libreboot. Cheers to the BSD Now team as well. Because I guess that was covered in an earlier episode, which I don't recall at the moment. But Libreboot made apparently this white MacBook it, run again. It feels like a misconnection from a newspaper. Yeah, it's good that we're just the middleman here and connecting the people. Glenn, That's what this show is about, Glenn, right? <laughs> Glenn on the train would reach, like to reach out to the person with the Toshiba libretto who was there on Monday the 3rd. Uh, next up, we have <laughs> feedback from Carl. Carl has a memory question. I hope I can remember enough. Hi, JT, Benedict, Alan, and Tom. Thanks for your continued work on the podcast. I have a question about memory use on FreeBSD. Top tells me the total amount of active and, in, and inactive memory. And I'm opening a terminal to answer the rest of this question. Uh, wait. Um, Top also tells me the amount of residential memory per process. Okay. Um, how can I find out how much of a process's resident memory is active and how much is inactive? Oh, I have no Isn't idea. Isn't that the wired column? Um, you could also look at what's it called VM stat or sysstat dash uh, what's where's the memory switch um, M info no how much is oh I, I spent all day reading about the VM <laughs> system and now I can't so answer it, this question really um, it's definitely something in um, VM stat VM stat is very uh, uh, detailed about these things 
Uh, and it should also be in Sysstat, one of these meters. Uh, there's also a VM, uh, VM stat in Sysstat this way around. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in top um, itself, I'm fairly sure it's either a switch or it's displayed by default. No, I... I mean, I mean the, the the resident memory is the process's resident memory, right? Like the size column is telling you how large the allocations yeah. is made to have R. Isn't R. RSS a resident um, set size? And then the, yeah, that that's telling you like how many of yeah. the pages it's actually touched. So they're real pages rather than just an allocation. Um, and if you run a Go process, you'll see its size is 700 megabytes, but it mm. will use like three kilobytes of that because Go is terrible. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about this question. One thing you might read is if you look for a Clara blog post on how the different memory components are defined on FreeBSD, that might help you figure out the the meat of your question, Carl. Yeah. Thank you, it's it really helpful. I hope somebody writes in with a good explanation. We want to learn as well, right? I'm not completely sure. It's in there. It's too many it's, types yeah, of memory. I'm fairly sure it's in there and we can get it out of the system, not directly from top maybe, but one of the VM stats uh, may have it, or you can make a subtraction here somewhere between active and inactive, and then get the, the total or total minus inactive is active and stuff. Uh, yeah, but I don't know out of uh, top of my head. Alan would probably know this from day-to-day -day work. <laughs> but yeah, if someone else knows, then let us know. We'll be happy to connect the dots in a future episode here. Uh, last in this week is Alejandro with Tom's laptop question. Oh, here's a... Uh, reference to you. So it goes like the following. Hello, BSD Now team. I heard Tom mention that he runs FreeBSD on his laptop. Could he please provide the specs of his laptop as well as all the details of his current installation of FreeBSD version, desktop, basic configuration details, etc. Ooh, I mostly use macOS on Linux uh, and Linux, and I'm very interested in trying FreeBSD or one of its derivatives on a couple of older spare laptops. Thank you in advance. Tom, take it away. Do you have them somewhere on the blog, uh, maybe? Andrew, um... Because get very detailed here. <laughs> um, so no, I mean, like the the problem is that uh, I I did run FreeBSD on laptops, and I and I plan to again in the future. I've I've done a pre order for the next round of framework laptops, so I'll I'll run FreeBSD on that. Um, but I've not really gone outside for the last three years, so I hmm. don't really use a laptop anymore. So I I, I don't have one. Um, I think like six months into the pandemic. Uh, I sold my FreeBSD laptop, so I was using uh, ThinkPad X270, mm. which is very old now. Um, it had the same processor in it as my work at MacBook Pro from 2016, and I couldn't sell the work computer, and I did not need to have uh, a desktop and two laptops. Mm. There's too many computers. Uh, so I got rid of the FreeBSD laptop. I still run FreeBSD as a desktop on a Intel NUC, which is um, an i3, 10th generation i3 Intel NUC, which is on my blog. It has 64 gigabytes of RAM because who knows why. Um, and in terms of desktops on like on free Unix as a desktop, I run um, i3 GAPS, which is i3 with an extension to have GAPS between the windows. Um, URXVT, uh, I used to use Source Code Pro, and I can't remember the font I'm using anymore. Um, oh, nice! A tool yeah. called Rofi as a launcher, a console called Yeah Console as a Quake style drop down terminal, and uh, Firefox, and then 
Zathura with a PDF extension for PDFs, because basically all I do on a computer is SSH to other computers. Uh, and so I didn't really need any of the rest of the stuff. Um, since I've been recording the podcast, I've always done this from macOS, but uh, because we, we have a call over Skype, then I record with Audacity, and then I read mm-hmm. stuff in Firefox. So the only one part of there that uh, would be hard to run on FreeBSD is the Skype part, but I don't really use a lot of software. I, I basically just built yeah. FreeBSD. And since you... And, and sometimes... <laughs> oh, there's that. Yeah, that takes hours. Uh, <laughs> and Dolly generations. Um, <laughs> no, Alejandro, if you have a spare laptop around and have some Linux experience, then by all means, try this out on your on your own. I'm fairly sure you will get very far with that. because Yeah, I, FreeBSD runs yeah. good enough on laptops. Um, it ran really well on the ThinkPad. Uh, the problem with the ThinkPad was uh, Lenovo were not very good at making computers. That was yeah. the problem I had with the ThinkPad. Um, yeah, like it, FreeBSD runs well. I ran FreeBSD on a 2014 MacBook Air for a while. No, older than that. 2012 MacBook Air. Um, it was fine. Um, this is just after the wireless driver appeared in 2019, so it was a very old computer then. Uh, but yeah, I'm really excited for the framework to come by, and I'll mm. definitely talk about it on this show and write blog posts, posts about it. But it's not going to ship till August, yeah, which is forever time. away right now, even if it <laughs> it's, it's a popular years. machine, yeah, at the moment. <laughs> but yeah, definitely don't try it out on your real system at the moment. But if you have older spare laptops around that are still working, then definitely do a test install there. There's nothing to lose and a lot of things to experience and gain here and learning. And then once you're secure enough with that, then go from there. So I'm fairly sure you will be uh, having a good FreeBSD experience on the laptop. Okay, so thanks for all these questions and thank you listeners for listening up to this point because now we're at the end of this episode, but there's more coming in the future as always. As long as something happens in BSD, we try to cover it. That's interesting for you and that's what we do every week. 